Well, if you'll turn with me to Habakkuk, it might take you a couple minutes to do that. That's okay. It's kind of small, and you might flip over it real quick. Um, today, I would like us to look at an introduction to the book of Habakkuk. And so we will be in, we'll read a little bit of each of these chapters, each, uh, each of the three chapters in this book. Um, but as we begin, I just want to kind of uh, give an illustration to start off. I have uh, really begun to enjoy like pencil drawing, as Judah has a pencil and he's drawing right now. I, I've begun really loving that, and it's been uh, relaxing for me. And I've been fascinated with the way other people can take something that is real life and they draw it in black and white and you almost can't tell the difference. Mine are not like that, (laughs) hopefully one day. But uh, there's been some things that I've learned from drawing with pencils that drawing an animal or a person just reveals how little I pay attention to detail. Like it's, it's really hard to draw a person and make it really look like a person or the person that I want it to look like. Um, and one of the main techniques in drawing is the practice of illusion, like making something shaded or, or smudged so that it looks like something different than what it really is. Um, and it's, it's an illusion because it isn't the real thing. It's a, a flat picture in black and white of, of real life. And when you look at, at a drawing, you're seeing a caption of a, of a real scene. Um, you're seeing something that, that is just a small portion of a much bigger picture. And this is the artist's illusion to the real thing. You see what they want you to see if they're a good artist. And hopefully you will see that. And when we face things in life, we are tempted to view it like a picture or an image like that. Um, when it's one-dimensional. It's framed in. It's, it's how we see it. And... There is always more to the scene than what we know. Think of Job. There was much more going on than he knew. Um, And there's more detail to life, to real life, than we are able to take in most times. And so you can go to an art gallery and you can stand fascinated at the pictures on the wall and uh, just be amazed at somebody's artwork. But that's like the hamburger version of a prime rib. When you go to the Swiss Alps and you look out and you see the vista of the mountains, like the, the picture in the, in the museum is much different than the real beauty. And today we want to uh, come to Habakkuk and not see it as a fast food hamburger, you know, the way we see it. We want to see it how God reveals it to us. And we want hopefully him to destroy the frame and and help us to step back and see the full vista of what's going on. Because if you jump straight into Habakkuk in the middle of the Old Testament minor prophets, you're missing a lot. And it won't make sense. And it'll be be boring. It'll be uh, uh, treacherous. You will come out with a very man-centered theology. So today we want to say uh, Habakkuk did not present us with something fast food. He presented us with something that is the Word of God. But when we interpret it, sometimes we can get to the place where we misinterpret what is there. Or we don't see the depth that is there. And so today with the Spirit's power, we want to have the, the frame removed and the, the, we want Him to shatter the, the picture so that we can see the whole the whole scope of the vista that is before us. We want to see God's faithfulness in the midst of the Old Testament. 
So I kind of want us to look at, at an introduction to this. So uh, Habakkuk is known for this short three-chapter three book, and he, is not, he does not show up anywhere else in Scripture. There is a, an apocryphal book called Bell and the Dragon, which I assume is probably a very interesting book by the title, but he is not mentioned in any other canonical book in, in our Bible. He was a, uh, a contemporary of prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and uh, Jeremiah and Zephaniah, and his name means embracer or one who is embraced. And that's very interesting as he is calling out to the Lord for revival. And the Lord gives him an answer. And it's like the Lord is embracing him with what the true, um, the way that, that history will truly unfold. And he's, he's helping Habakkuk get to the place where he can accept the sovereignty of God. And this is the only book in the Bible that, that I know of that is a dialogue between just one man and God. And that's it. It's just him talking to God back and forth in three chapters. And that's a very unique perspective. <clears throat> Habakkuk's reason for writing was that he had just, he, he lives in a time that had just experienced great spiritual reformation through the, the likes of King Josiah. And he brought great spiritual revival with destroying of, of temples and idols that were pagan. And then a new king arises who returns the nation back to idolatry. But to understand this, we have to go back some 90 years before Habakkuk to the time of King Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah. Hopefully you're recognizing these names and that you know these people. Um, you may not know a whole lot about them, but maybe you recognize their names. King Manasseh was a, a catalog of unfaithfulness. He was the longest reigning a monarch in Judah of 55 years. And he was the most wicked king, according to what the Bible said, in the land of Judah. He undermined all the work of his father and had returned the nation to um, pagan worship after his father had done what Josiah does later on. A few lowlights of Manasseh are he followed sinful practices of the pagan nations he rebuilt pagan shrines destroyed by Hezekiah. He built altars to Baal. He placed an image of the false god Asherah in the temple of the Lord. He worshipped the host of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He burned his son as an offering to Molech, a false god. And he practiced illicit forms of divination, soothsaying, consulting false prophets, and necromancy. And tradition holds that King Manasseh was the one who killed the prophet Isaiah. So not only did he dislike the word of the Lord, but he chose to try to stamp out the word of the Lord by killing a prophet. And Second Chronicles briefly mentions a repentance from King Manasseh and an attempt to return the nation to correct worship of Yahweh. However, his, his long reigning tenure and his evil ways were too ingrained in the nation that after he died, his son Amon was quickly able to overturn any spiritual headway and it returned back to an evil nation. The Word of God says this about Manasseh. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. What a thing to be said about you. 
You are the king of God's chosen land, a chosen people, and you led the people to do more evil than all of the people that were driven out before the people of God. And Manasseh is a picture of wickedness and disregard of faithfulness to the Lord and His ways. And after um, Manasseh came Ammon, who reigned only for two years. And the people struck him down, and Josiah, his son, began to reign at eight years old. Now, Josiah, we, we've probably all heard about stories of Josiah. Good King Josiah. He, he brought a revival of faithfulness. And his name even means Yahweh heals. Josiah is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. He was a faithful king who followed the word and called the nation to obedience and trust in God's ways no matter the cost. His obedience held off the wrath of God for a time. He almost stood as a mediator between the people and and a a wrathful God because he helped return their ways back to a, a holy living. And so in this way, even though he's, he's an imperfect example, he is a picture of Christ. Josiah desecrated all the pagan sites of worship. He removed all the pagan priests and cult prostitutes. He destroyed all the idols. He restored the temple and the sacrifices unto the Lord. He restored the Passover. And he faithfully followed the book of the law which was found during his reign. And he sought to obey the Lord faithfully. And that's an interesting thought that when he became king, they didn't even have the the law of the Lord because Manasseh and Ammon had done so much evil that it had been put away. It had been lost. And it was found and recovered during King Josiah's reign. And he returned the nation to to, uh, right worship before the Lord. And this is what the Word of God says to him. Listen to the contrast between Manasseh and Josiah. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. After Pharaoh Necho killed Josiah in battle, one of Josiah's sons was placed as ruler by the people. And his son, who was Jehoahaz, reigned for three months until Pharaoh Necho deposed him. He's like, I don't like this guy, so I'm going to get rid of him too. And he deposed him, and he placed another of Josiah's sons on the throne. And you may see in in 2 Kings and Chronicles, sometimes he's called Eliakim, but his name was changed to Jehoiakim by the Pharaoh at that time. And Jehoiakim would be yet another evil king over Judah. But this king, Necho, had under control because Jehoiakim would pay tribute to Necho. And so we're now into the, the, the final king in this list. And I know this has been a lot of history and some may be excited about that. Others may not. But this is very important information. Jehoiakim was the final downgrade of unfaithfulness. He was a spendthrift that even though uh, when the nation was in grave poverty... He built himself a fancy new palace, which the prophet Jeremiah condemned. He severely taxed the land to pay for the tribute owed to Pharaoh. He returned the land to pagan and idolatrous worship after Josiah's reforms. And he killed the prophet Uriah and burned the scroll of Jeremiah in defiance of the word of God. And he was king when Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, or as Habakkuk 
mentions their name, the Chaldeans. He was king when they conquered Judah. And the word states multiple times that Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And it's almost as if God um, stopped him from being a yet even more evil king than Manasseh because he was on the same trajectory, killing the prophets of God, rejecting the ways of God, and returning the, the nation to pagan idolatry. But then the captivity came. And so since... Uh, it's in, it's in Jehoiakim's time that Habakkuk begins to cry out to the Lord. Since the time of the Exodus, the people continued to waver back and forth like this in their following of the word of the Lord and faithfulness to the covenant of the Lord. And Habakkuk was a prophet speaking for the people to God and receiving a word from God and speaking that back to the people. And as the book opens up, you can understand that Habakkuk has been praying and praying for revival. This is not the first time that he has cried out to the Lord. He's been pleading with the Lord. And we can learn a lot from from the way Habakkuk cries out in lament. Because we too live in a time of great apostasy, of rampant wickedness, of idolatry. It may not be the pagan idolatry of that day, but it's a different idolatry. Idolatries of our hearts are still there. And as it states repeatedly in the Old Testament, I believe even what Nathan read earlier, that every man does does what is right in his own eyes. Habakkuk's first prayer sounds as if it could be prayed today in our current culture. Look Look with me. At Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 2 through verse 4. This is Habakkuk's first cry to the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is crying out, and he says, How long shall I cry for help? You realize that when the the Scripture started to be be written here, he had been praying, and he, he has seen nothing but darkness, nothing but pain, nothing but misery. And yet the Lord responds with a message that is worse. He tells him it's going to get worse. For God is raising up the wicked Chaldeans to come and to conquer them and take them into captivity. The message of impending exile and conquer was a message that brought great grief and astonishment to Habakkuk. And think about that. You may be in places like that at times. You may have been in your life crying out to the Lord, seeking for something to change, something to break, something to just shine some light and hope. And then God gives you a message that is completely contrary to what you're crying out for. And he says, it's actually going to get worse before it gets better. And as the book progresses, we see that God, He's revealing something to Habakkuk that is very important to us. There's this this idea um, for Habakkuk and the people in all that was planned that God was doing something in them. And that was also going to be based in His character that they needed to remember. And so we we will talk about those in just a second. 
And we learn in this book that the sovereign God, is He doesn't work just one thing at a time. He's multitasking. He, he's, he's moving everything all at once, more than we can even fathom. He's drawn all of us into this room here today, and we all come from walks of life that are very different. We all have different struggles. We all have different things going on. But we're all hearing the same message. And he tells them that there are three reasons why Judah is going to fall into captivity. One of those is for the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh continues to come up as a thorn in the side of Judah's flesh. He says, It'll be for the sins of Manasseh involving bloodshed of the innocent and the rampant idolatry that was a part of his kingdom. It also mentions in 2 Chronicles 36, the word of Jeremiah, that God was disciplining the nation with 70 years of captivity because... Two, they did not obey His word and observe the Sabbath years for the land which occurred every seventh year. So for 490 years, they didn't observe that seventh year Sabbath to let the land rest and then pick up again with with crops after that. And so they, they had gone for 490 years so they would have 70 years of captivity. And yet, there was a third main reason which this captivity is coming And this is what Habakkuk is told. It is revealed in Habakkuk 2.4 that captivity would reveal those who were truly faithful and those who were wicked in the nation of Judah. And if you look at all three of these reasons why captivity is coming, they all come down to one thing. Faithfulness to the Word of God and to His way. The Lord responds to Habakkuk, by clarifying that this captivity will clearly delineate those who are proud in heart and those who are humble and faithful in heart. Because as he's crying out, what we read in chapter 1, 2 through 4, he's crying out against the people of Judah. He's saying, Our own people are this way. Our own people are wicked and rebellious. Can you send revival, Lord? And then the Lord says, an even more wicked nation's coming. So when we read that first complaint, don't think that he's talking about Babylon. He's talking about his own people. And so God says, this captivity will separate those who are faithful and those who are wicked in the land of Judah. Let's read chapter 2, 2 through 4 again. And the Lord answered me. This is the second time the Lord answers Habakkuk in the book. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So God is revealing, one, that the righteous shall live by faith. He tells him the, the, the one who's wicked is the one who has a puffed up soul. One that, that, is, that is not upright, as in not, not holy within him. But it's puffed up. It's built up on his own, own thoughts, its own way. But the righteous shall live by his faith. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul loved this verse because it comes up throughout the New Testament. Some of the ones that, that you are probably familiar with are Romans 1, 16 and 17. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he mentions it again in Galatians 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous righteous shall live by faith. And if you think Hebrews was written by Paul, it comes up again, or by whoever wrote Hebrews. Hebrews 10, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And even John the Baptist quotes this in John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the faith that that person has is in Christ, not in himself. So as as Habakkuk hears this this message from God, there's a, a shining light of hope. There is, there's, a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel because those who are wicked will be punished and there's a way out for those who are righteous. Those who hold to the faith of God, hold to the Word of God, will make it through. He tells them that they will, they will live by faith. He reveals to Habakkuk that the righteous will shine forth in the captivity as ones who are truly God's people. They will not succumb to the worldly pagan culture but will maintain life in the faith. So how are the righteous able to remain faithful? This is the second point that is revealed. This is the vista that I was talking about at the beginning. The only way that we are able to be faithful is because we have to be dependent upon the faithfulness of God. Since no man has reason and truly no ability to be faithful in himself, he must rest in a God who is faithful to his own word and his own character. So as we heard about Manasseh, let's go back to him and think about that for a second. The word of God may have been rejected by Manasseh, and the ways of God were put away, and he he led the nation in a pagan way. But yet the word of God still came forth because prophets rose up to tell Manasseh, and to tell the people, you are, you are straying from the way of the Lord and captivity and destruction is coming. And that's why Manasseh gets to the place where he's tired of hearing it and he's, he's likely the one who kills Isaiah, the prophet. And even though he rejects it, God sends messengers to reestablish the Word of God and he refuses to hear them. One passage that reveals God's Word during Manasseh's time and Manasseh's direct disobedience is this, 2 Chronicles 33. And the carved image of the idol that Manasseh had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. And then this is Manasseh's response to the word. Manasseh led Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So God remained faithful even though man did not. And then we see God being faithful in the years of Josiah. 
As he sought the Lord, the Lord blessed the nation and gave them prosperity and withheld the wrath of God from them. And he granted them wisdom and understanding in the word. And they, they sought to follow that word. And then during the, the years of Jehoiakim, the third king that we talked about, during Habakkuk's time, we see that God is faithful to bring judgment on the wicked, which he stated over and over through the Old Testament, would come for failure to obey his word and his ways. So, God is holy and faithful, and He cannot help but be holy and faithful. Because when He ceases to be these things, He ceases to be God. He calls us to faithfulness based in His faithfulness. And so, we are, when we read the, the words of Habakkuk, and we read what God says to him, when He tells him to write the vision, to make it plain, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. We can trust it because God said it. We can trust that it's coming even though we can't see it simply because we know God is faithful and He spoke it. Look again at what Paul says in Romans 1. I'll read this again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we, we come into the New Testament and we hear something that God has said to us through the Word and that we have to have faith in this, that it is the power of God for salvation if we believe in it. Everyone who believes it is the power of God to salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The faithfulness of God has put the righteousness of God on our account when we trust in Him. And MacArthur states that, that the gospel is the only thing which can deliver people from lostness, from the wrath of God, from willful spiritual ignorance, from evil self-indulgence, and from the darkness of false religion. <clears throat> it rescues us from sin and the penalty of sin, which is eternal wrath and punishment. The gospel of Christ being the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the substance of our faith. <clears throat> Though Christ had not yet come during the time of Habakkuk, the promise of that deliverer, of that Messiah, had been given. And Habakkuk and those in Judah would be counted righteous by living in faith in the coming Messiah. And God was faithful and He sent His Son in the New Testament to be the propitiation for the sins of the people. You've probably heard of Hebrews chapter 11 being called the Hall of Faith. And it mentions all these men and women from the Old Testament. And it talks about how they were promised something and they believed it and they lived by it and then God blessed them for it even though they had not yet received it. And they, they had faith which looked forward to a Savior yet to come. We have faith that looks back toward the Savior who has come and it looks forward to that Savior coming again. One who will restore all things Broken and make all things new, once and for all remove sin and suffering. And Habakkuk reveals to us that God is working to upholding his faithfulness and doing what he said he would do. So he tells us if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It will not delay. And so he's telling Habakkuk, it's coming. 
it may seem, it may seem like it's, it's waiting and it's waiting and, and you know it's going to get worse and, and it's a hard thing to remember and it's a hard thing to deal with. But he says it's coming because I'm faithful and it, I will do it. We can know that because God Himself is faithfulness. He will do what He says. We are called to a faith that is based on uh, the Scriptures alone. Not upon the news reports that we hear on TV, the CDC guidelines, our feelings, or the sight of present fulfillments, or anything that is, that is a burden upon our heart at this current moment, and we're just praying for a light at the end of the tunnel. No, our faith is based upon the Scripture alone. And the coming captivity would be a purifying for the nation of Judah. Judgment on past sin and a separating of the righteous and the wicked. This test would reveal who's, who's God's, who God's people truly were and who those who weren't His people. And so the question is for us today is, what is our faith in? Is it in things that are present and tangible, things that we can hold Things that we drive? Things that we live in? Is it things that are here and now? Something that we can control? I may have already said that. Is it, is it in a God that is formed by our own hands or in our own image? Is it something that follows our will? Is our faith in pleasure? Comfort? Things that make us feel good? The problem is when our faith is in these things we will find ourselves giving up the faith when those things don't last. But when your faith is founded in, in the things that, that are eternal, then no matter what comes, no matter what suffering comes, no matter what pain comes, our, our faithfulness can remain upon the faithfulness of God. Because we know that it will not delay. It will surely come. We can wait for it because He says it will happen. And we we can trust in the eternal faithfulness of God. Captivity came to Judah because they failed to be faithful to follow the Lord and to walk in His ways. Captivity came to Judah to separate those who were faithful from those who were unfaithful. But yet all of them went through captivity. So I ask again, what is the substance of your faith? Is it in the gospel of Christ? Or is it in the false gospel of self? Is it a faith that you stir up by pulling up your bootstraps and just believing? Or is it a faith rooted in God and His gift given to you? You see, it is a gift, this faith, that when we cry out for it, He will give it to us. We live in a broken culture and a society that sounds quite similar to what Habakkuk saw. A world devoid of justice. A world devoid of morality. A world devoid of compassion. And we should not be concerned with surviving this captivity. We should be concerned with walking by faith in this captivity. And the only way that we do that is by uh, faith in the gospel of Christ who lived and died to set us free from sin and free from wickedness of this broken world. So the question is today, how do you know if you have true faith? If it's not in the things that that I can hold on to, if it's not in the things that that are governed by my will, then how do I know what it is and how do I know if I have it? And one, it's not simply a bare acknowledgement of Christ as Savior. That is part of it, but that's not all of it. 
For the Bible even says that the demons believe, but yet they are not given justifying faith. True faith involves three things. And you can know that you have faith, the gift of faith from God, through these three things being evident in your life. True faith involves denying yourself. This is when you come to know that you have no ability in yourself, no righteousness on your own to merit salvation. Habakkuk had nothing of value. He had nothing to say, this is good in Judah. All he had was wrath and bad things and evil. There was nothing of merit there. He had to trust in the faithfulness of God. Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So true faith involves denying yourself, but it also involves... When you deny yourself, you automatically are putting your faith in something else. And that's reliance upon Christ. Your soul casts itself upon Jesus. And it rests in Christ's person. The soul that has true faith glories in the cross of Christ. And looks up to Him as the object of faith. Romans 3, 23-25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Christ is the one who stands in our place, who takes the wrath of God that we deserve. He is the propitiation. He satisfies God's wrath so that we may have life. But finally... There's a third thing. True faith involves denying ourselves. It involves uh, reliance upon Christ. But then it also involves applying Christ to ourself. Uh, a favorite Puritan of mine of late is Thomas Watson. And he says, A medicine, though it be ever so sovereign, will not be applied, or if not applied, will do no good. Though the plaster be made of Christ's own blood, it will not heal unless it is applied by faith. The blood of God without faith in God will not save. We have to apply Christ to ourself. He was the propitiation for me. He was the one that stood in my place. That was my sin that He took on the cross. Our fighter verse this week is John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Receiving Christ and believing in His name is applying Christ to yourself. It's not enough to say, well, my dad believed, my parents believed, I was raised in the church, so I must be good. You have to say, I believe, I trust that what Christ did on the cross was for me. And so, as we, as we come to the conclusion of this and, and think about uh, trans, or, uh, not transgressing, walking through the book of Habakkuk, hopefully in the future, we must see that, that God is faithful. That he, is, he wants us to not look at the, the world around us and let that dictate our faith. Habakkuk was struggling. 
He was crying out to God because it was not good. And we can look around, and if we let what's around us dictate our faith, we will be let down. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It takes true faith to look down the tunnel of darkness and not see light at the end and trust that God will be on the other side. If there's light at the end, then it's a whole lot easier. Oh yeah, I have faith. It's it's coming. But when it's pitch dark at the other end, that's true faith. No matter if you find yourself in the same situation as Habakkuk, don't forsake the faith. Return to Christ. Remember the object of your faith, Christ Jesus. Remember that you have faith, uh, that through faith in Christ, you have a better possession, an abiding possession. Our faithfulness is rooted in the faithfulness of God. What He says will happen, will happen. If He says that when we call out to Him, we can have Christ, that means we can call out to Him and have Christ. When He says that we can be uh, made just, through the blood of Christ, then we can be forgiven and made just through the blood of Christ. Those who live by faith will be able to say with Habakkuk at the end of the book. Turn to chapter 3. Look at verse 17 through 19. And I might read this twice. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's read that again. And think about that first verse. That's a destitute, sad place. But yet he finds hope. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. But here's the hope. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That is the difference between the soul that is puffed up and not upright within him and the soul that walks in righteousness by faith. A song that we're going to sing in just a minute says, No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future sure. The price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, may the insufficiency of the speaker not hinder the word that was spoken today. God, may we see that you have called us to live by faith. 
You've called us to hold to the truth of Your Word and to the truth of Your ways. But God, You didn't leave it there. You, you gave us a firm foundation. And that firm foundation is Your faithfulness. That You are always faithful to Your ways. You are always faithful to Your Word. And even when we are not faithful, as it says in 2 Timothy, You remain faithful. And God, may we know that the things that You have told us in Your Word, whether it be the the story from Habakkuk that we've read through today, or the promises that we see in the New Testament for those who are believers in Christ, Lord, may we have the faith to believe that those things are true. May we let go of the things of this world. May we um, release our death grip on the things that are fleeting, the things that are are of lesser value. And may we hold fast to that which will never fail us. God, may we have that hope. May we rejoice in that hope. May we say with Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He will be my strength. He is my portion. And God, as we face different trials and temptations, even as we leave this this building today, may may we be reminded of your faithfulness. And that we can put our hope in you. You are our foundation. You are our hope. You are our strength. And you're the power for us to even have faith. May you be glorified in all that was said and done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.